Hello, and welcome to episode 109 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we're warming up a nice plate of chicken livers and heading to Sunday service for our review of the Southern Gothic thriller, The Devil All the Time. But first, how are you, Scott? Scott, I'm doing great. I have survived another week in work from home. I think it might just string on forever now. And I've also, one of these things that I realized that obviously this week, we watched uh, a Netflix film, which is not unusual for us over the past six or seven months. But one thing I realized is that at this point, I'm basically just paying for AMC A-List so that I can watch Tenet in IMAX uh, every uh, once a week and uh, paying $24 per month for that. And honestly, I'm fine with it. I don't think any other movies are ever going to come out in theaters. Okay. Yeah, you would be fine with that. No, I, I kind of realized the the same thing the other day. I was like, should I look and see what's playing just, you know, so I can go to the theater on, on Saturday or something, get my money's worth? No, nothing really, nothing really doing. Uh, you know, there's Tenet, there's the New Mutants, and and that's about it. I wanted to see The Nest, but unfortunately, it's not showing anywhere near me. Like, the closest really? place is like an hour and a half away. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a little disappointing, but yeah, I, I guess... Maybe I should pause it again. I, I don't know. I, I, I'll have to wait and see what happens with a few of the other movies, I guess, that are supposed to still come out in the fall. Probably won't be, but we'll be talking about that a little later. If you do that, you can't restart your subscription for three months. Well, then uh, I guess I'm not going to do it. I guess I'll just uh, I'll eat the cost. Um, or just yeah. go see Tenet and IMAX once per week. You know what? I'm not as much of a Nolan shill as you, so uh, maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Um, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I've seen the film. I quite enjoyed it, you know, not to spoil too much, but um, I, I'm not like itching to get back out there in, in COVID world and uh, see it again once I've experienced it, you know, one and a half, one, 1. 1.75 times on the IMAX screen. So, but yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to the, to the day we get to talk about that film because each time I watch it, I think I get more. I collect more and more thoughts on on things that I like and dislike about it, and some things that I dislike that I now maybe like or I'm okay with. Yeah, I mean, it, it's that kind of film. As with it most is. of Nolan's films, it improves with, or you know, it, you change your perspective with repeat viewings. But yep. um, turning aside from tenets uh, for now, our movie today is Netflix's The Devil All the Time. Uh, The latest from Simon Killer and Christine director Antonio Campos, The Devil All the Time is a Southern fried crime drama that echoes the works of Cormac McCarthy and the Coen brothers. Tom Holland stars as Arvin Russell, a jaded young man raised in rural Ohio and West Virginia. After losing his mother to cancer and his father to religious fervor at a young age, Arvin is highly skeptical of the mighty impact religion holds in his small town especially when a charismatic young pastor played by Robert Pattinson sweeps into town and wins the admiration of Arvin's adopted sister, Lenora, played by Eliza Scanlon. Elsewhere, we meet Carl and Sandy Henderson, a pair of serial killers played by Jason Clark and Riley Keough as they hoodwink their victims, young men who are unsuspecting hitchhikers. Still elsewhere, Sandy's corrupt cop brother, played by Sebastian Stan, becomes involved with the twisted story as well. Scott, The Devil All the Time is a decade-spanning epic that features an all-star cast that also includes Bill Skarsgård, Haley Bennett, and Mia Wasikowska, 
But is this another flashy misfire for Netflix? Or is this an exciting primer for the streaming services promising fall slate? That is an interesting question. And I think somewhere in the middle, but if I had to choose one, I think it's an interesting primer because frankly, put Scott, this film's not all there. Like it's just not quite rounding out uh, and checking all the boxes and, and really becoming something that I think Netflix will want to really tout come awards season with maybe a few exceptions, but I think it could be a primer for what's to come uh, this season because they certainly have a lot of very interesting films coming out over the next, you know, I mean, month and change, really, right to the end of October for as far as the schedule we know. It looks very interesting. But yeah, it's somewhere in the middle, I think, is based on, you know, where I'm falling in this film because I think there's some amazing performances in this movie, frankly. I think some there's really strong performances in this film. At the same time, I'm not sure why anyone would want to watch this movie. It is just like punishment. This movie is punishment to watch. Um, and I'm usually okay with that. I don't usually have too much of a problem with that. If there's a reason why I feel like I'm going through this. And I feel like the only reason that I could grab onto is engaging storytelling. Like I think that the like visually and the way the performances are done, it's a very engaging film. I, I thought it was going to feel longer than it did. Based on, especially if I put it on paper, on everything that happens, it feels like this movie should have been, you know, should have felt like an absolute marathon. But it doesn't, which I think is a compliment because when I actually, again, sit back and think about this film, I don't think this film is saying anything at all. It's not, and usually I feel like if you're gonna if you're gonna put your audience through the ringer for two hours and twenty minutes, which is about what this film's runtime is, you usually got to have something for them to latch onto and to think about. And with maybe an exception or two. I don't really think there is anything there. And honestly, I don't think that there's any reason to get attached to any of these characters. Just the storytelling is compelling enough uh, and that it kept me glued to the screen. I don't know. It was it was an interesting uh, paradox almost in, the, in that sense, because it's the kind of movie on paper that I feel like I'd just be exhausted by. And there are some exhausting parts of it. Sure. But I stayed invested or in, engaged enough to the end, like to get to the end of the story even though I haven't really felt like I'd gotten anything out of it when I got there. It was a really weird experience, I'd say, actually. Yeah, um, I I also think, yes, that it's a very dark film, for sure. There's a lot of disturbing things that happen uh, yes. over the course of the movie. Um, you should definitely know that before getting yourself into it. Um, but Not I don't for the paint of heart. Yeah, I, I don't know what it was, if it was the storytelling, like you're saying, if it was the performances, if it was the period, right? I am admittedly very um, biased towards Southern Gothic stuff. I, I do really enjoy it. I mean, William Faulkner is my favorite author. Um, there's a few films, like last year we had Them That Follow, which I do think is a better better film than this one. Um, you know, we had like The Gift is this old Sam Raimi movie that I think is super underrated. That's kind of a Southern Gothic. Type. But there's there's a few that I enjoy. But anyway, um, I, I did enjoy the film. Ultimately, I did find it entertaining despite its darkness and depravity um, over the course of the movie. Um, not saying anything is maybe a tad harsh, but I do think um, what it if if it's saying things, they're not particularly cutting or profound. Um, I, I think there's a little bit there about, you know, the the cloak of religion that certain people can use um, to cover up their bad acts. I think there's a, the, the thing that interests me the most maybe is a little bit there. There's a little bit of uh, commentary on like fate versus religion. I think a little bit that I do want to talk to talk about maybe a, a little bit later. Um, but if there's anything I can glean from it, uh, it's it's maybe something in in that whole theme. 
But I think it's a good story. I mean, like you say, I, I like these types of stories, right, where you have a bunch of sort of disparate narratives. Um, and for a long time, you're just kind of watching these separate stories play out. Um, and you're just but then eventually, you know, they all come together in the end. And I think when they do come together, it's pretty satisfying. Um, ultimately, even if it, you know, it's still it gets very dark. Um, I think it is satisfying to watch all of these things come together um, in, you know, a, a relatively smart way. Like it's not it, it doesn't feel um, like hastily constructed or anything in the way that everything comes together. There's this one movie I saw at the London Film Festival um, a few years ago. That was one of these types of movies. It was like a Polish movie. And the the end when they all come together was literally just this one person hits another person with a car who not who runs into the you know building and knocks you know sets something on fire where this other person is it was literally just like a domino chain of everyone died and like this one horrific and i was like what the heck was the point of that um like that was not satisfying at all but this is this is not that i guess is the point i'm trying to make i think um, it all makes sense how things come together in the end i think the performances are definitely really strong i mean look you look at that ensemble you, you expect there's going to be some really good performances in here. Um, and I think, you know, questionable accents aside, I, I think that there are, you know, that most of the cast is really strong here. Some of them have pretty small roles, to be honest. Some of the bigger names in the cast, you may be excited to see, um, but they either maybe go away early on or don't show up until pretty deep into the film. It is a long film. It is about two hours and 20 minutes, maybe a little bit too long. Um, but again, I, 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 found it entertaining for the most part. It's by no means a classic. It is by no means, you know, a film that I, I think to your point is going to get awards attention. I don't think it's that, uh, but I don't know if Netflix necessarily, um, you know, intended it for, for intended for the film to be that ever. Um, but I think it is another strong calling card for this director, Antonio Campos. I mean, I've said before that I am a, definitely a fan of Christine, which is his last film. It has that amazing Rebecca Hall performance. I think it's a good film. I think, this one is a good film. I think his best film is still to come, uh, which is good. I mean, I, I'm encouraged by that. That's exciting to me because I think he has uh, churned out two really solid, definitely both very dark films, um, maybe in, in slightly different ways. But um, I think, you know, the, the best is yet to come from him and I will be excited to see what's next. But um, Scott, I think we can get into the cast of this movie now because it is so big and sprawling. Uh, but yeah, you know, some of the major names in the, in the film are definitely... Tom Holland, uh, Robert Pattinson, uh, Eliza Scanlon, and then sort of the duo of Jason Clark and uh, Riley Keough. Those are some of the main players um, in the story. And I guess Sebastian Stan as well. I highlighted him in that that lead up. Those, those are some Bill of the main guard. Yes, but well, again, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, I he's think a, he's in the film for about as long as Tom Holland is. Yeah, I guess the first half. I, I think the meat like, of the, the meat of the story probably features these people, but um, yeah. But anyway, who of the cast, maybe who of the major cast members, or or anyone else, honestly, that you want to highlight here? Yeah, I think for me, maybe not ultimately surprisingly, but one of the things that I want to see is yes, we've heard about all these other projects that Tom Holland is either working on or or going to be in that are outside of you know the MCU and Spider Man, etc. And like he has that Russo brothers produced movie Cherry or whatever, and he's doing he's going to be Nathan Drake uh, if Uncharted is ever a movie that actually gets made. But I was like, all right, what is he going to do coming going from being your friendly neighborhood Spider Man to this film, right? Like this really dark psychological thriller of a film where he's like 
he's not a bad guy. He's not a good guy either. He's a haunted soul. And is he going to be able to bring that to it? And so I was really interested to see if can Tom Holland be someone who's not Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. And Scott, I'm really happy to say that he can be. The kid absolutely can be something that's not Spider-Man. And I think he was the standout performance in this in this film for me. Maybe because of I wanted him to like some combination of I really wanted him to be the standout performance and he also delivered on that as well. So I, I think there's some like I said, I think almost from top to bottom the cast is really good here. And I think just because of what I wanted out of Tom Holland, the fact that he was able to fulfill that. Uh, maybe elevated him even more in my eyes, and I really like. I really enjoy his accent. Like he's one of the many British people in this cast, or non-Americans in this cast, uh, and like somehow he luckily was not one of the ones who couldn't do an accent. Um, he was pretty good, and I thought his character was interesting. I thought that he really gave it one hundred and fifty percent. He did not phone it in whatsoever. Not that I'd expect Tom Holland to at his current age. I wouldn't expect him to really phone it in on anything, but. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I think that he has some really meaty scenes to sink his teeth into because like I was saying, he's a haunted soul. He has a lot to live with both, you know, from the fate of his parents, but also with the the hand that he's been dealt even now, right? Not even looking back at his past, but uh, having to take care of his adopted sister, his adoptive sister, things like that. It's, um, it's a tough life for him. And he had to, uh, as the film might put it, you know, I'm not doing this thing because I'm a good, I'm a good or bad person. I just have to do the things that I have to do. And he's letting fate take him where it will. And I think that it's a very believable performance uh, from someone who has been as haunted as he has been in his life. I think in sort of second place, if that's such a thing, would probably be Robert Pattinson. Um, we were talking in this about this while I was watching the film because you'd already seen it. And, and you were warning me that Pattinson accent is out there. And that is... To say the least, <laughs> the accent is out there. But uh, something that you were alluding to when we were texting earlier on in the film about this is that I was kind of fine with it. Mm -hmm. There is another example of a British person doing a Southern American accent that I thought was literally one of the worst accents I've ever heard. Um, attempts at an accent that I've ever heard. Not to say that it is the worst, but just, I don't know. It was just like, I, I found it to be a an affront how, bad, how poorly done it was. Um, and... But and I was really worried about Pattinson's after you told me just wait for Robert Pattinson's and, and I honestly I was just like yeah this is weird and clearly not a southern accent but I guess like it's fine whatever he's doing um, it was very strange and I don't know he's I feel like this is just like a typical Robert Pattinson performance honestly like I was reading a, a review of a, a letterbox review of this film from a I think he's like pretty popular on Letterboxd, but he often writes very funny reviews. Brat, the Brat Pitt account. It's, it's a girl, but yes. Oh, it's a girl. Sure. It's even better. Girl, right? Yeah. Now. Mia, Mia yeah. Vagino is her name. Yeah. Okay. Mia Vagino. Yeah. I was reading her review on Letterboxd and she was talking about how this is major deja vu moments for watching a two hour plus gritty Netflix drama only for Robert Pattinson to show up an hour plus in, do a weird accent and then go away. <laughs> uh, of course, talking about the crown last year when he was playing the French king, the king. In, that, yeah. in that film. Oh, sorry, yes, not the, the crown, yeah. the king. Yes, the other, the other thing that's involving leadership. Um, yeah, no, very funny, very funny accent. Um, good performance. I had a big Pattinson weekend. I haven't seen Tenet again, but yeah, it was good. Like it's a look. I say it's a solid, it's like a typical Robert Pattinson performance because I feel like he's been doing these sort of indie type performances for six years now, um, and he's good at them. It's very strange, but he's good at them. Yeah, uh, I I think yeah, the point you're making, it's not. It's not cringy bad. It's like it's not distractingly bad. It's just interesting bad, and in yeah. uh, in my opinion, and you know, I, there's yeah background on how he just like refused to dialect coach. 
I imagine the director, I imagine Com- Antonio Campos probably just didn't even know what he was going to sound like uh, when he until he went up there and started doing it. But I think that it works. And I think I actually think that Harry Mellings, who are who you're referring to as well um, as the other British actor who plays sort of the the first uh, Hellfire and Brimstone preacher that we see in the movie. I think they both were fine to me because uh, they're over the top characters, right? Like by, by design, they, these are over the top characters. I mean, Harry Melling is literally the, you know, pouring spiders on himself in the church type of uh, snake handling pre- preacher, you know. Um, and the, the difference is Harry Melling couldn't decide whether he wanted to do a British accent or a Southern accent is the problem. Yeah. His British accent, like you can literally hear it in some of the lines. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that is fair. Um, but it didn't bother me that much again, because I, I think the character is so over the top that, um, sure, why not have a, a crazy accent? And I think I felt kind of the same about Pattinson. I do think he is get, gets some more nuance in some of his other scenes, like with Eliza Scanlon. Some of those scenes yeah. are tough to watch, but um, believable, I think. Like, I think that for all his fury when he's like up in front of the pulpit and everything, uh, these are a lot more understated, but, but very believable. And he, yeah, he, he's a convincing, you know, and charismatic sort of snake oil salesman, so to speak. Um, and so, uh, I think he does a good job. I, I agree with you about Tom Holland. It's not just that he's not Spider-Man. It's that he is literally the antithesis of Peter Parker in this movie, right? Like Peter Parker is the most innocent, bright eyed, like fresh faced kid that you can imagine. And this guy is the exact opposite of that, right? He is very jaded. Um, he goes around, you know, sort of beating people up that he thinks are mistreating uh, or that, I mean, that are mistreating um, Lenora, Eliza Scanlon's character. Um, and and yeah, and then, you know, in- increasingly becomes more violent as the movie goes on, not to, you know, give too much away. But um, but I think, yeah, I, th- I think he is believable, even though like he's not a very imposing looking guy or anything. And maybe that some of that is just because we know him as Spider-Man and Peter Parker. Um, but he sells it. And, and that gives me some hope for Nathan Drake, right? Because I, when I heard he was cast, I was like, I don't know that he has like the rugged type of thing that Nathan Drake has. Um, like he's, he, I don't know if he could be the charming rogue or whatever, like Nathan Drake is, but um, I mean, all joking aside, all these delays to Uncharted are probably good. So he can actually just like grow up a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Um, but I think that this shows that he is a d- diverse and talented actor. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, he's he's strong here. Al- Eliza Scanlon is good. She does her, you know, typical sort of put upon demure woman type thing that she's been doing over the past few years. But she's very good at it. I, I think she will be branching out from that in the future. I hope so. Um, God, I hope so. It's, it's exhausting to see her in this role every time. It's starting to get to that point. Yeah. Nothing on nothing against her. But it's just like exhausting yeah. to see her yeah. sick I mean, or dead at the end of every movie. I made the joke that she and Elizabeth Moss, I don't know who's been put through the ringer more in the last couple of years, but, uh, but she's good at it. She is. Um, and, and yeah, you know, some of the other cast members going down the list, like Sebastian Stan, Jason Clark, they are fine to me. They, they didn't really stand out a ton to me. I do think that Riley Keough's character has a little bit more of an interesting arc than some of the other supporting characters in the movie. And she can actually do a Southern accent. I mean, she's Elvis's granddaughter. So like, yeah, she she can actually do a southern accent. So I think she maybe stands out a little bit from the supporting cast. Um, no one else is given a, a super amount to do, but everyone plays their part well, right? Like even in the, yeah. the smaller parts, it's nice to have, you know, bigger actors. Douglas Hodge also shows up. Um, but I, I think, uh, yeah. And Bill Skarsgård, I thought was really good. Yeah, yeah. They get the most out of this ensemble cast. For sure. I mean, with any ensemble cast, you're going to have people who have lesser roles. Um, that's just the way it goes. But I think the people in the lesser roles deliver. 
yeah, this is a true. This really does feel like a true ensemble cast. Like, yes, Tom Holland, I guess, is your lead. But I think he actually clocked the runtime. He's like not actually in the film that much longer yeah. than a lot of other people. And it's one of those films like if everyone was just put in for best supporting actor, like, I don't know, like it probably is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it is one of those one of those kind of films. It's very strange. But no, I think one of the reasons why some of the supporting cast doesn't really stand out, even with Robert Pattinson, I don't think stands out that much more than some of the others is just that they're all solid. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think any of them are given more material than others to work with because like I was kind of alluding to earlier, and maybe this will segue us into the next topic, but I'm not sure there's that much material there beyond just like what's actually just right there on the surface. Yeah, no, I I think that is, that is something that is fair to draw. I do want to posit a couple of things. Um, So, so one of which I think the obvious theme here, and we are getting into spoilers now, I think the obvious is just like the use of religion to cover up bad behavior. I mean, that's not, again, that's not a very profound theme. But obviously we do see it in the movie. I mean, Harry Melling's character sort of forecasts what is to come and, um, you know, his sort of religious fervor or whatever. Like he literally thinks that he can resuscitate people from the dead. Right. And so that leads him to killing his wife, Mia Wasikowska. In a very brutal scene. Yes. That yeah. was, that comes out of it doesn't I wouldn't say it comes out of nowhere because it's heavily implied that. that yeah. But the man in the film does it. Is oh, my God. I was just like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, there's, there's that aspect of it. Then you have Robert Pattinson, of course, who kind of uses his power to, uh, you know, to have sex, sex, sexually women, manipulate yeah. uh, Eliza Scanlon. Um, and several other girls in the Yes. Yeah. The which town. Tom Holland figures out, but, um, but yeah. I, and, and so, I mean, you know, Tom Holland is kind of the, the antithesis of this, right? He's very jaded after what happened to, um, his his parents as a young kid, because that's another aspect of it, right? That Bill Skarsgård um, sacrifices himself basically in the in the belief that that will be able to save his wife from dying of cancer. And of course, they both end up dying. He sacrifices the dog too, who is also an important part of this, um, because that he's a very close companion of of Tom Holland's character of Arvin. So um, another brutal scene, which comes right before the one where the where Harry Mellon's character kills Mia Wasikowska. So uh, yeah. it sucked. That that fifteen minutes was a tough run in the film. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, Christine. It, it may not have quite as much violence, but it's uh, it's equally as dark, and uh, and does oh, have, right. of course, that vi- that shocking act of violence at the end of the movie that everyone will know is coming. But anyway, definitely recommend that film. But uh, you know, as for this film, that's that's a theme. I don't think it's saying anything again, pr- particularly profound. We've seen this idea before in movies. Like, it's not going to come as a surprise to anyone that you know, sometimes very fervent religious people um, are using that as a cloak for, you know, something else for, for their immorality or whatever. The thing is, is that I agree. Like that's obviously like one of the things happening, but to that, like one, which is also what you're saying, it's not a profound or frankly, even interesting in the way the film presents it a theme to explore. But furthermore, it's like, it doesn't even feel like that should be the main theme. I mean, that is, that it's like essentially affects like two or three characters of like the 15 in the ensemble cast. Like, like it's not even, it doesn't even feel like it's the main theme, but then when I think, all right, what is the main theme? And I guess it's like, it's like haunted people doing bad things to each other. But then like, what, like what even is there deeper than that? But maybe you're getting there. Maybe you're going to tell me. Yeah. I think if I had to single out a main theme, like there is an, element of like i think there's a battle between like fate versus religion and maybe the idea that um that you know it, our our fate is 
already predetermined or something like that. So, so, so basically I'm thinking about this early scene, right? The, the very, I think it was even the very first scene, right? Where they go into the diner where Jason Clark and, um, and Bill Skarsgård go into the diner and they make a big deal about the fact, I mean, they kind of make a deal about like they, he gives up his seat or whatever. The two waitresses, yeah. Right. And because, because of that, Jason Clark ends up marrying Riley Keough and, um, and Bill Skarsgård meets up with Haley Bennett. Um, but you know, at the end of the movie, right. They both end up dead. They both end up like put, put through the ringer over the course of this movie. And, um, and, and so I think that, um, there is an aspect of like, yeah, like, uh, you, you may think that like these little decisions, it's kind of like the reverse. And, and I guess no one will have heard this yet, but we, we were talking about with Benjamin Button last week, uh, how there, there's this whole thing about like, oh, maybe if you did one thing different or whatever, this could change the course of your life. Um, and with this movie, I think it's like, you could do one thing different, but it doesn't matter because everybody's headed for the same place in the end. Um, and I think that's where the religious religion aspect maybe comes into it as well of like, yeah, you can believe or whatever that you're going to, a, a different place that you're going to have and you're going to hell, whatever, a, after you die. The fact of the matter is everybody ends up in the same place. Um, it's just a matter of how do they get there, right? Because pretty much at the end of this movie, almost everyone is dead except for Tom Holland. Um, and so I think there there's something there. Um, and yeah, if, if I had to glean something from it, it's maybe that idea, right? That that uh, our, our choices in life uh, don't really matter because fate and you know destiny and whatever has already predetermined everything for us as opposed to you know some higher power you might believe in yeah i mean interesting i didn't necessarily think about that i still think that's like a little weak in yeah, this film yeah. like it's like oh if, if you just take the the start points and the end points right like i feel like it, there's too much time in the middle for you to confidently say that like oh like doesn't matter y'all would have ended the same place whereas you know this entire time like riley keogh could have divorced, you know, her husband. I mean, granted, that might have led to her being murdered by her husband. But I would suspect so. Yeah. Well, maybe you never know. Um, or she could have just killed him, right? I mean, she, I mean, they talk about right at the end of the film, like she talks about how, oh, like she, the narrator or whatever, like she, she considered like turning it right there and there and killing, you know, her Jason Clark's <laughs> character and running off with Tom Holland. And I'm just like, well, she didn't do that. She could have made that choice, and things might have been different. Um, yeah, I don't uh, love the VO as a side note. I think it's a little yeah. too over-explaining in this movie. But um, yeah, so I, about that because I did want to bring it up. I mm -hmm. did. I did want to talk about it. Like at the beginning, I thought it was fine, and they just didn't know when to quit it. <laughs> yeah, I think it started out fine. Like for the thirty thousandth time on this podcast, VO is okay if it's not telling you something that's like directly on the screen in front of you that you can interpret. Which at the beginning, I think is true that it couldn't necessarily yeah. do that. That it was doing. It was telling you something that wasn't right there in front of you on the screen. But by 30 minutes into this film, every time the video came on, I'm like, you're just explaining to me what I'm looking at. I don't understand. And because of the nature of the story, I think it's like, it's important that they like set the scene very clearly who everyone is and stuff like that at the beginning of the movie. So I'm yeah. fine with the VO at that point. Yeah. But yeah, once, once we're into, once we're not jumping around in time anymore or whatever, I, I don't feel like it's really necessary, but, um, but yeah, so, so that's kind of my, my theme, right. That, um, you know, maybe you you believe in a higher power, whatever. Yeah. Maybe you don't. You're probably going to end up in the same place, um, no, no matter what. You're gonna you're gonna end up dead in some horrible way. Um, You'll be dead in a ditch either way. Terrible person, probably. But you know, there's moral ambiguity here, which I always like to see in a movie. Like, no character is really fully good, or well, I mean, there's some characters that are fully bad. I would say, but um, <laughs> Eliza Scanlon's character is pretty good. 
That's yeah. true. That, that's true. Um, Except for sleeping with the preacher, I guess. Well, uh, I don't think that was really her fault, but um, I don't think so either. But yeah. Um, anything else you want to bring up here, Scott? I mean, uh, we've we've kept it a little bit short here, but um, like you said, there's really not a whole lot in the way of um, you know themes to talk about. Um, you know, did you kind of like the way that the stories all come together in the end, right? Because you know what mm-hmm. we sort of have is we have. Um, Tom Holland ends up getting into the car. He ends up being one of the hitchhiking victims. We've seen, we've seen, you know, a couple of hitchhikers get killed um, throughout the movie by Jason Clark and Riley Keough. He ends up getting in their car. He realizes he's about to become a victim and he kills both of them. Um, And, uh, and then Sebastian Stan, right. He knows about sort of what they've been doing um, because of this photo that he found he's found. And so he is, you know, desperately trying to cover up um, what his sister, what Riley Keough has done. So that's, that's sort of how they all come together in the end. Did you find that satisfying? Right. Because I, you know, there, there is a sense of like, okay, what are all these stories? Where are they going? Like at, at certain points in the movie early on, I, I think it's like, okay, I get that these two guys were in the diner at the start of the movie, but like, where is the connection between like, you know, Tom Holland and Robert Pattinson, all of this with what's going on with these serial killers with, you know, what's going on with Sebastian Stan, even, you know, in addition to the fact just that he's the brother of, of uh, Sandy. Yeah. I think that's a good question. I, I think that it comes together very neatly and so if we're talking specifically about how the how all the threads come together, I think that the film actually does that pretty well. Yeah. I think, however, this film maybe suffers a little bit from not needing all of those characters. Um, not 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 that it's not like critical to the story wrapping up tidily, but like I'm not sure that all those characters added things to the overall narrative of the film. Like I I get that they're there and like the, the like the like the subplots like the characters are necessary for the subplots that are told but are all the subplots told necessary to be added yeah so, so sebastian stands is like the one that i'm kind of just like i don't really feel anything about this one way or the other yeah it's just another threat of corruption and bad people doing bad things to other bad people that <laughs> i think you get out of this film because obviously he ends up killing like the local i don't know like <laughs> crime lord i don't even know what you described him as yeah um but i mean yeah maybe it's another aspect of like hey these people are very religious and yet they end up in the same place this guy represents you know law enforcement he represents like what is supposed to be a good in society kind of like religion is supposed to be and yet he you know is is just as messed up as as everyone else um newsflash no one's going to be shocked by that in 2020 yeah, everybody sucks, I think, is the message kind of of this movie. Yeah, but, I mean, I guess he's not killing random people, but he is cheating on his wife. I'm like, did he have a wife? I don't even know. It seems like he was sleeping around. The woman that he was in the car with, is that who you're yes. referring to? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I don't right. know. But um, but yeah, no, I, I think you're definitely right about that. Who knows? Um, hey, everybody sucks was kind of part of the message of Parasite, too. But <laughs> we won't get into that. Um, wow, what a comparison. I know, right? <laughs> this, this movie and Parasite. That's, you went I think, there. I think that's where the similarities end. But yeah. um, anything else you want to bring up before we move into wrap up, Scott? Scott, honestly, I was racking my brain about whether there was anything else worth bringing up. And I I just don't think there's much there to this movie. Like I enjoy like it was engaging and I enjoyed it. The performances are really what you should go for. But again, I don't know if there's much more to think about. I think I'm going to shockingly for a film this dark. I think I'm going to forget about it pretty quickly. 
Yeah, you know, I, I hope I don't because like I did like it a lot in the moment. I, I did get more or less what I wanted from it. Um, I think it is, a, you know, a good solid entry to that Southern Gothic genre, like I said, that we don't get enough movies from. Um, but we'll see. I, th I think some of it will depend on, right, the, the Netflix releases that we have coming next month because if those are really strong, then yeah, this is going to fall by the wayside. But right now, this definitely ranks as one of the, the bet, the, one of the strongest Netflix releases that we have watched this year, in my opinion. Um, that's probably true. I got, I'm trying to think if there'd be any others that would be, but I mean, that's, a, I mean, I'm not, thinking of ending things for me, but I know not for you, but I mean, yeah, definitely not for me, but I, I think that this would probably be it. But again, Netflix's high bar doesn't really pop out until yeah. a couple weeks from now, I'd say I, I will be, let me put it this way. I'll be very disappointed in a month's time. If this movie is still the best Netflix movie that I've seen. Well, actually, this is not the best in my opinion right now because I like thinking of anything more. But if if we don't, if none of the movies coming out next month are better than this movie, I will be disappointed. That's what I should say. You and I both. Honestly, all three of them should be better. But you know, yes, <laughs> there are a lot of movies that should be good and aren't. So we will see. Um, Indeed. All right, Scott. Let's uh, let's uh, move into to wrap up. Oh, I should say too just because I noted up front the chicken livers. They looked very good um, in this movie. There's, there's a scene where Robert Pattinson is in the church um, and he's been brought chicken livers by the mother of Eliza Scanlon, or the adopted mother of Tom Holland. and uh, Grandmother. It's the grandmother. Tom yeah, right, right. Sorry. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like he doesn't eat them. And I just felt like that was a crime. I mean, that was one of the greatest crimes that he committed in this film <laughs> was not eating the chicken liver. I'm, I'm kidding, obviously, but, um, but it's they funnier look, if other crimes are made, but when you're sexually molesting yeah, yeah. underage girls, maybe not. It's fine. You're going to cut it out. I don't know. So. <laughs> I don't know. We're leaving this one in. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm obviously kidding. But the point is, he should have eaten the chicken livers. And I hope they didn't go to waste on the set of the movie because they looked very good. And I love chicken livers. So anyway, uh, I just felt like that needed to be said. Um, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if they were eaten on set. I mean, not these days with coronavirus, but true. This was probably shot before coronavirus. So craft service probably was definitely uh, shot before coronavirus. Okay, favorite scene or moment from this movie, Scott? Yeah, I think there's uh, some scenes I certainly never want to think about again in this film. So not thinking about those and thinking about some that are better. Like, like I, said, I think the final scene, honestly, like this tense kind of shootout almost between Tom Holland and Sebastian Stan's characters in the woods. I really enjoyed it. I, I, this is one of those films where even though it's like super, like on the page, it's like super choppy. I think a lot of it just feels like it, sort of flows together pretty nicely. And again, I think that's part of the good, the good storytelling uh, nature of it, even if there's not too much substance beneath the surface. And so I think I just go with that finale because I think the finale, it builds up to itself really well. And like I said, I enjoyed how all these story inter, you know, all these separate threads came together at the end and to round it off with this sort of, I don't know, it's not redemption, of course, but this sort of the end, the culmination of Tom Holland's journey uh, that felt really satisfying to the extent that you could be satisfied with any part of this film. Yeah. I mean, I did like that. Like, you know, when he starts out, starts setting out, you know, hitchhiking and you realize, Oh crap. Now I what know what's happen? about to happen. Yeah. Now, I, like, now I get why. I mean, I think that's satisfying. That's like the, you know, what happens when a good, when a good story uh, comes together. Um, I love it when a plan comes together, but, um, but yeah, I, so I think that's a good scene. I mean, I, you know, it's, it sounds weird to say it's a favorite scene, but I do think that the, the you know, murder of Mio Wazikowska's character is an effective scene um, because of how chilling it is, like you said. And I, I think 
you know, he got this right in Christine as well with the like suicide scene. Um, he doesn't try to like, glamorize. yeah, he doesn't, <laughs> everyone should know that, but uh, he doesn't try to glam it up. Like, right. Like he doesn't try to, you know, give us some watered down PG 13 violence or anything. Um, and I think to do so would diminish, you know, maybe some of the, you know, tangential points that he's trying to make um, with the movie, if, if anything. Um, and so I think, it's, you know, it's shocking. It's, it's right up there with like, you know, invisible man scene in the restaurant or whatever, where you're just like, Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. Um, so, so I think it is effective in that regard, even if I, like, it seems weird to call it like a favorite scene, but it's good. Um, yeah. It would be really weird to call that a favorite scene, but it is quite effective in that it, it made me jump. <laughs> it did. Yes. Uh, let's put a score on it. Uh, what would you give uh, the devil all the time out of 10? Well, I wish I could give it a 6.66 just for its name, uh, but I'll settle for a 6.6. Yeah, you could. Um, we, we can we can put it down. No one no one is going to, uh, I think, file any complaints. Literally with, no uh, one. The corrections department. But um, yeah, I'm at a 7.4 on this one. I enjoyed it. I think that um, it's, again, one of the more solid entries from Netflix this year. I got more or less what I wanted, um, but you should definitely watch them that follow if you enjoy this because it's a better film from last year. Um, I think that has similar ideas in it. So um, yeah, 7.4. And an extra snake that this film does not have. It has lots of snakes as a matter of fact, but, um, but all right, let's uh, we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back from the break, Scott, we're going to be talking about some Disney news, uh, including some calendar shifting. And of course the new trailer for the Mandalorian season two that was released this week. Uh, so stick with us. We'll be right back. this episode of some like it scott scott uh unfortunately we do have some calendar shifts or at least some rumor calendar change rumored calendar changes to discuss um in terms of movie the- theatrical movies that are getting moved back um you know we kind of were wa- waiting and seeing what was going to happen with tenant right if it if it could do decent enough no- decent enough numbers in theaters to where other studios would be like okay we're fine with putting our movies out you know wonder woman 84 is an example of one that has already been moved um but you know there's there's some other big movies that are supposed to be coming out um in the fall uh no time to die black widow dune um all of which you know look to be in in some peril um with tenant not doing you know anything close to what they probably would, would have hoped for um box office wise i don't know how they could have had any expectations whatsoever, but, um, but by even maybe the, the uh, most forgiving uh, expectations, I think they probably fell a little bit below them, but um, Scott, why don't you tell us about Disney in particular and some of the things that are rumored um, in terms of where certain projects are going to be moved? Yeah. Like you said, Scott, uh, the experiment that was releasing Tenet in theaters did not seem to go as well as maybe everyone. I mean, and I mean everyone in the industry had hoped for. I think that not only did Warner Brothers wanted to do well and theaters wanted to do well, but I think all the other production companies wanted it to do well as well to give them the green light to launch other movies into theaters. And I think that whether they had expectations or not, frankly, I'm not probably sure that Warner Brothers had any expectations. Not to say that they didn't think that it would do okay, but just they didn't know what to expect from it. And I think what did happen was a little bit disappointing for the industry. You know, 
uh, I'm I've gone. This is now Tenet's third weekend in, out in the U.S. And I went this past weekend, and the theater was still only like basically the same level of full where I was at as it was on the first weekend. But that's in the IMAX theater, right? Like that's not in all their other showings uh, and all their other show times, in which frankly a lot of them probably were empty. And that's disappointing and disheartening. And yes, we saw Warner Brothers, who of course is feeling the most pain probably related to Tenet not doing the numbers that they would want, especially relative to normal times. But I think that's also affecting other companies as well. And it came out this week or was rumored, I should say this week that Disney is considering moving black widow off of its first week end in November release date. Currently not sure where they'll be moving it to. If they'll push everything back another release window again, like they did earlier this year when they pushed all their MCU films back one spot on the MCU calendar, if you will, or if it will just be a delay to the Christmas period and then be competing directly with Wonder Woman 1984, which I don't think either Disney or Warner Brothers would really want since they are both two female-led superhero films um, in a box office world that's still going to be affected by coronavirus. And I think it almost certainly would spell disaster for Dune this year, or at least that would definitely not happen if that were the case. But not sure when they're going to be moving to. Maybe they'd move it back just one month to the first weekend in December and still try to maintain some distance from Wonder Woman 1984. Again, it's not super clear there, but then they'd kind of be in the airspace of No Time to Die at Thanksgiving. But I think there's going to be a lot of reshuffling, frankly, still to come with everyone's films, some forward, some backwards. It wouldn't surprise me to find, actually. And so it'll be really interesting to see where things do finally shake out there. But then the other part of this rumor, besides Black Widow moving back, uh, possibly moving back on the release calendar, is that Soul might be getting the Disney, like direct to Disney plus premium access treatment. That's something like Mulan did, which I think might make sense. I'm a little surprised, but I think with the way that Onward went last year, even in its first weekend before coronavirus started, when it was underperforming, uh, we'll say like tried and tested IP like Toy Story and other uh, Pixar films, which you'd expect, by the way, not a surprise that something like a fantasy adventure animated film like Onward would underperform even something like a cultural you know, piece like Coco or uh, certainly a franchise IP like Toy Story um, or like the Finding Nemo franchise or something like that. Again, not not surprising, but with that and with the uh, difficulties that we're seeing, I think that maybe Disney Plus, I mean, I personally think that they shouldn't put in, put anything behind a $30 paywall on Disney Plus. I think that's silly. But, uh, you know, getting that treatment probably makes sense for a film like Soul, which everyone in the family will be interested in, not unlike Mulan, but everyone in the family will be interested in and certainly probably not interested enough to go see it in theater, Scott. But what do you think about this? Like, do you think moving moving Soul to Disney Plus, whether it's behind a paywall or not, is the right move for this film? given this setting, if they're unwilling to move it back again and push everything in the Pixar and Disney animated release calendar back again? I think it depends on the price point. I, th I think Disney's going to have to have long talks about what they want to do with the price point for this after Mulan, right? Because, yeah. you know, they, they swear, they claim that Mulan did fine, uh, but they're not going to release the numbers. And I honestly don't think that, that it did fine. Like nobody was, nobody is make its budget back. That's for sure. Yeah, no, nobody is talking about this film. Nobody was really talking about it even when the weekend that it came out. Like, I think that, um, yeah. that you know, the interest for it, you know, was there at one point, but it definitely waned 
um, over time and, and probably waned even more once people realized they were going to have to pay $30 to get it. So I think if they, if they, you know, look at maybe a $20, which I think is that what Onward started at? On premium VOD? Well, I guess Onward just went straight there for free, right? Yeah, it did. It, it went yeah, straight to Disney Plus platform after like a month and a half. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that's true. But uh, I mean, $20, right, right, was what other movies were doing, like sort of at the start of the pandemic, um, yeah. going to, to VOD, like The Invisible Man and Emma, I think, were some of the ones that were going for like 20 And The Way Back were some of the ones that were going for like $20. you are missing the big one, Trolls World Tour. Oh, of course. Yeah, the big one. Um, well, the one that started all the controversy. Yes, yes. And, yeah. and the one that maybe is the best comparison point, right, for Soul, right, for a, a kid's animated yeah. movie. Um, like, I'm definitely excited by this movie i'm a, i'm definitely a little surprised that disney is going to push this one because i felt like yeah onward was one that they felt fine with doing because it was always going to be sort of their you know second movie this year like in terms of like the emphasis they put on their movies that they're releasing this year i mean this yeah. might not have even been like the awards candidate or anything like that onward i think was just going to be sort of their b release this year whereas yeah. soul was definitely the one they're yeah, putting it's everything Pete doctor behind. yeah jamie fox like, like it's definitely their A-list. Yeah, but so uh, I, I guess I don't know. Like, I think, yes, it has. I think it will do better than Mulan. I think it has potential to do better than Mulan, um, especially if they put it at a lower price point at, at $20. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just don't know um, if people are even going to shell out $20 for something, right? That, I mean, I guess the counterpoint to that is that they, you know, you somewhat know what you're getting with Mulan in terms of it's a, you know, remake of a, an old film. With this, you know, you know you're getting Pixar, right? Which is a pretty reliable product. Like that, that is the draw of Soul, but it doesn't have any pre-existing IP or anything. So I think those are the things that Disney's going to have to weigh in their decision making. But I mean, if they put this for thirty dollars, I'm not buying it. Like I'll just say, come out and say that. Yeah, I mean, I, as much as I love Pete Doctrine, as much as I love Pixar and and what they've done over the past few years, I don't think I'd shell out thirty dollars for it either. Yeah, uh, definitely not after seeing what thirty dollars got you with Mulan. Not that again, <laughs> not that I paid the thirty dollars, but um, but you know, if yeah. if that was worth thirty dollars, then Scott didn't uh, actually watch Mulan. He just reviewed it on here without seeing it. I did. Yeah, I I did what I think a lot of people do on the internet nowadays, which is I just pass judgment on a movie without even watching it. Um, but that's Scott, you want you want to talk about something? <laughs> no, that's another discussion for another day. But um. <laughs> My my uh, story that I wanted to talk about today, Scott, in the realm of Disney Plus also is The Mandalorian Season 2. We finally got the trailer. There was speculation about when, you know, it's going to come out. Was it going to be during um, some big sporting events, the NBA playoffs, whatever? It finally just randomly dropped in the middle of the day on, like, was it Tuesday or something like that? It was, it was in the middle of the week. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, this is coming out late October on, on Disney Plus uh, Season 2. And it looks like somewhat more of the same uh, to some regard from season one, right? We're going to have, we know that it's going to be the Mandalorian and baby Yoda, uh, the child uh, going around to a bunch of different worlds. It looks like, and you know, Man Mandalorian Mando's talking about how, Hey, I, I will do whatever it takes to protect the child. Uh, you know, probably some new enemies. We got a little bit of a tease with what we saw at the end of uh, last season, right? With Moff Gideon, with the John Giancarlo Esposito character of like, Maybe there's some sort of dark Jedi, Jedi sorcerer type thing going on here. I think what what's the, do they even say Jedi sorcerer at one point, I think, in the trailer or something like that? Um, I think they're talking about Ahsoka, though. But yes, yes, that is true, because we do know Ahsoka is going to be showing up. But um, 
there's a lot of weird theories out there on the internet, of course, about like, oh, is one of the planets that they went to Coruscant and maybe like is Palpatine going to be in this now that we know he like survived and all this stuff. Oh I don't God. know. But Tell I think me. if Palpatine is in this thing, yeah. Scott, I will turn it off. Of course. we, Yeah. I mean, of course, we know Boba Fett is coming back too, right. And, and we know that Tamara Morrison is going to be returning as Boba Fett um, to voice him. Um for for season two we that was came out yesterday i think but um i think it's it's definitely safe to say based on the existing information and you know maybe some of these theories out there might prove true or whatever but this is not going to be the same as season one in terms of you know it's kind of its own thing right it's really removed from the rest of the star wars mythos other characters that we know of um in the star wars world it, it was just kind of its own thing and i mean i think that's a lot of what i liked about it but i'm also not opposed right to them tying it and i think this was always going to happen right and obviously the way that season one ended right with the the dark jedi type thing reveal of uh, with moff gideon um i think you know we were always going to see more of a tie-in in season two um but we will see. I mean, Star Wars has definitely fumbled the bag recently with um, with the rise of Skywalker and and, uh, you know, that entire debacle. So I'm going to view any new Star Wars projects that, you know, purport to connect to the greater universe um, with some amount of skepticism. Um, but, you know, Mando season one was really strong. Some of the best Star Wars in a while. Um, so I'm excited for it, you know, with a little bit of caution there. The best Star Wars since a few years ago with the Last Jedi, but yeah, sure. uh, yeah. No, look, look I I thought it was a really exciting trailer. I like, yes, it is inevitable that they tie in other characters, but I mean, Scott, we've talked about these news items when they came up earlier on this year. Like, do we really need Boba Fett? I I guess it is a Mandalorian TV show, and he is, of course, the most famous person to at least wear the Mandalorian armor, even though he's not a Mandalorian himself. Um. So I guess that makes sense and is not surprising, but I also just kind of wish they'd keep doing their own thing and telling their own story. Cause I think, look, I, I know that with Dave Filoni being the mate, like really the person behind this, I know Favreau is contributing as well, obviously, but Dave Filoni being sort of the brains behind this, it's always going to tie in his favorite characters from clone wars and rebels and stuff, which it feels like that's what's happening with the inclusion of Ahsoka, et cetera. But Look, that, that's fine, I guess. Like, if they tell a good story and if it's done as well as the, some of the best parts of season one, I thought there were some pretty low points in season one, but the highs were so high and some of the best Star Wars there was. I totally agree with that. Um, then I'm here for it, Scott. And and frankly, just to give Disney Plus a hard time here because I think they deserve it, this is the most exciting thing that's come out since Mandalorian season one, honestly. Um, and so I'm finally glad that my Disney Plus subscription will finally be paying for itself again. You aren't you weren't excited for the one and only Ivan or whatever that movie was that they released with uh with Helen Mirren and a bunch of other voices and stuff in it. Yeah, I mean that was just thrilling. Yeah, that and Artemis Fowl. I was really here for it. Oh gosh, yeah. Uh yeah, you're right. No, I mean I think let me put it this way. After this trailer, I think a lot of people will be resubscribing to Disney Plus because <laughs> they they probably canceled it uh, after a few months of like, well, Mandalorian's over and doesn't seem like there's anything else really going on here. Um, yes. So I think wouldn't, Disney wouldn't surprise me. I think they will appreciate this coming along next month. Um, yeah. And look, like they also released a like Disney Plus also released a sizzle reel of things that were still to come this year. Of course, Mandalorian was one of them, but there were also clips of WandaVision in that. So it seems like WandaVision is still on track to release later this year. Whatever crazy nut job show that ends up being, that's going to be different. 
um, whatever it ends up being. But yeah, that's exciting. Obviously, Falcon and Winter Soldier's gotten delayed because they were still filming when coronavirus happened. So that's been pushed back a little. I don't know if that will hit this year. If they try to line it up, maybe with the end of WandaVision, um, just to kind of string them together. I mean, I don't know. Is Mandalorian season two eight episodes again? So it'll probably be ending around Christmas. Maybe you get maybe get WandaVision start right after that. I mean, if they're smart, that's what they'll do, right? Like they'll make it like HBO and line up their headlining series, like basically just one picks up when the next one one ends and string it along throughout the year like that. They're smart. They'll do it that way. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, you know, last year they built it up to the with the ending being like when Rise of Skywalker is released. So maybe this year they'll do it where the ending is when Star Wars Episode Nine, a.k.a. Dune, is released uh, in theaters. Maybe that's how they'll they'll plan the, the episode rollout. But Scott's um, going to ride that joke until December, baby. Until it doesn't come out in December, and then I'm just going to be sad and have to realize, oh, there actually was a Star Wars episode nine already. Um, tragic. Um, <laughs> all right, Scott, anything else you want to mention on the news front before we uh, wrap up this episode? Christopher Nolan makes good movies. Wow, who knew that Scott felt this way? Uh, <laughs> huge news. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I hope to talk to, about Tenet soon. Um, we know we we have kind of been waiting on Jay to to get around to watching it, but I just honestly don't know when that's going to happen. So we may just have to bite the bullet and um, and go ahead and talk about it here in a couple of weeks. Okay, Scott. Well, I think that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at at shelton two zero one three over on Twitter, and you can find me at Scarvy Dents. Uh, and don't forget about our podcast Patreon page as well, patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, even if you can't support us over there, please rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we, of course, hope that you will return for our next episode of Some Like It, Scott, on which we will be discussing uh, the mystery film Enola Holmes starring Millie Bobby Brown uh, on Netflix. But until then, for Scott Shelton, uh, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Congrats on our shortest episode ever. Woo!